Amen. Amen. Uh, the Lord absolutely has done an amazing work in Noah. Because if you're like me and you heard that anger part, you were like, Noah? If you talk to Noah for more than, more, more than five minutes, I, I've, I've even asked Noah, like, Noah, do you ever get upset? Like, do you ever? That is, that is amazing. He is the most self-controlled person I know. So that absolutely is a testimony to the work of the Holy Spirit. Praise God indeed. All right, well, good morning, everyone. And uh, we're continuing in our series in First Timothy and continuing to deal with the relationships uh, that Christians have within the church. And so um, through chapter 5, we're following the theme of honor. We looked at honor to righteous widows. We looked at honor to pastors, elders, shepherds who rule well. And now we're going to look at honor uh, among slaves to their masters. So before we get into our text, uh, I think this is worth dealing with a little bit. The topic of slavery is worth spending some time on and, and uh, clarifying. Um, if you're like me, if you've been in the church for a while and you've had some engagement with, with non-believers and skeptics, probably one of the most common questions you will hear is, doesn't the Bible condone slavery? Anyone ever heard that? You've probably heard that maybe, maybe more than once. Doesn't the Bible condone slavery? So... Um, one of the first things we have to overcome is this modern temptation to read um, ourselves into ancient texts. You know what I mean? The modern temptation to think that what words mean to me and what I think things are, are how they have always been. And so we tend to assume that words and concepts have always meant the same thing that they mean right now. And really... That's not only ignorant, but it's arrogant. It is arrogant to think that history must bend to the present. Um, it doesn't stop us. I mean, you look all around. The, 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 the world around us is uh, really on a, uh, a, a crusade to I ignore and uh, rewrite history. But we must learn from history, uh, and so we must do research before we react. Um, it's a good practice all the time. Research before we before we react, and probably do some homework before you engage in hysteria. I know no one here has ever done that, um, but we know that people do. So, you know, for example, we wouldn't have any problem when we read the Bible thinking that when the Bible speaks of food and clothing, that they wore, wore different things than we wear, and they ate different things than we ate. Pretty simple. But how many people read our modern idea of of slavery into the scriptures, thinking that there is no different. Um, and so, if you have this ugliness of impersonal, involuntary, inhumane slavery in mind, like we have in recent Western history, then the idea of showing honor to masters sounds offensive and sounds unthinkable. Um, so what I want to do is, um, instead of summarizing uh, the, the material that, that's out there. I think um, Kent Hughes and Brian Chapel did a really good job. So I'm going to read a pretty lengthy portion from their commentary on First Timothy. I think it's really helpful, and it will be on the screen as well. Um, so just to kind of give you a, a context before we get into our text. Uh, so they write, It has been estimated that there are between 50 and 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. 
and that as many as one-third of the populations of large cities such as Rome, Corinth, and Ephesus were slaves. Let's stop there. What city is Timothy and Elder in? Ephesus. So one-third of the population, probably one-third of the church, give or take, is a slave. All right, let's continue. Some in the Ephesian church were slave owners, as was Philemon in the, um, the Colossian church. Many of the church were either slaves or ex-slaves called freedmen, and some in the Ephesian church were slaveless citizens who, because of their lack of servants, were, were often poor. So we must understand that the culture of slavery affected virtually every aspect of the Ephesian church. They go on to write, slaves under first century Roman law could generally count on eventually being set free. Now here's where the differences come in. This was called manumission. Very few ever reached old age as slaves. Slave, and just so you know, all this is footnoted. Slave owners were releasing slaves at such a rate that Augustus Caesar introduced legal action to curb the trend. Think about that. They were releasing so many slaves that Caesar had to change public policy because it was, because it was messing with the economy. Despite this, inscriptions indicate that almost 50% of slaves were freed before the age of 30. So this is because parents often sold their children into slavery to pay off a debt. And it wasn't like giving them over, like disowning them, but their, their children would often work off a parent's debt. That's why many of them were released by the age of 30. They go on. Furthermore, while the slave remained his master's possession, he could own property, including other slaves. A slave completely controlled his own property and, in, and could invest and save to purchase his own freedom. In fact, the excess of the nouveau riche, the newly rich ex-slaves, were scandalizing the old money Romans. They go on. Uh, slaves were regularly accorded the social status of their owners. From outward appearance, it was usually impossible to distinguish a slave from free persons. Slavery was often preferred to freedom because of the security it offered. A slave could be a custodian, a merchant, a CEO, or even a government official. In most homes, the teacher of your children was a slave. One of the, some of the most educated people in the Roman Empire were slaves. Your, your doctor, your baker, you go down the list, could be someone who is bonded to an owner yet owned their own home and owned their own business, and they were bonded until they paid off a particular debt. So they say, uh, many slaves live separate lives from their owners. Finally, selling oneself into slavery was commonly used as a means of gaining Roman citizenship and gaining entrance into society. Is that a little different than the slavery in our recent history? A little different than maybe you've been led to believe that slavery in the Bible is? So, uh, now that we've cleared that up, I want to have that in mind, and this is going to be a very practical message. Plenty of application and plenty of uh, cross-references along with uh, plenty of gospel implication. So again, we're only looking at two verses, and yes, we're going to spend all of our time in two verses because there is uh, much that we can think through and apply. So we're in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Please grab your Bibles. If you don't have one, there's one in the pew in front of you or around you. 
Paul says to Timothy, let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are believers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We lift up your name. You are high and exalted. You don't need us to do that for you. But for us, it is just a recognition of who you are, who you have always been, and who you will always be. May we be humbled by your word this morning. May we not be indifferent or self-righteous. May we not be apathetic or arrogant. Lord, your word is living and active, and every time we open it, it bears us naked before you. May you strip us of all of our ideas of our fleshly systems. and May you point us to the truth of your word. May Christ be exalted. May we see how you redeem something even as vile as slavery and make it beautiful. Lord, may your people be encouraged by your word this morning. May your spirit go before me and speak through me that what I say here today would not be my words but yours. Would your word encourage and build up your saints? Would they go from this place wanting to apply it, wanting to meditate on it, wanting to be faithful to it? Because unlike the saints of those days, we have been bought with a price And it is higher than anything we could ever pay and nothing we could ever pay back. We praise you for the price that our Savior paid to free us from our sin. Bring us into his household where we should serve joyfully and excellently. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. So first phrase here, yet all those were under the yoke as bondservants. So there's a lot of debate on how to translate bondservants, the Greek word doulos. Um, historically, it has been translated slave. But obviously, without the explanation I gave or without understanding the context of the day, um, it can be a bit of a struggle for people. But making it just servant is a little too light. Because a servant is a, a hired hand Um, But there was ownership involved here. There was obligation. There was a yoke. So I I think that bond servant uh, is a helpful and accurate translation. This is someone who is bonded to another for the purpose of serving them. And I don't want to paint just clearly or only a rosy picture either. Most institutions, slavery not exempt, is not a monolithic institution meaning it's not all the same. It certainly was not glamorous work. If you have a yoke, it's not fun, typically. When you picture a yoke, it is a large crossbar that was put around the necks of oxen so that they could drag heavy weight and so that they could be controlled by reins. 
So this is the picture of someone who is in slavery. Scripture also gives us the picture of the borrower being a slave to the lender. So when you get yourself into debt like many of the Romans did, you allow someone else to put a yoke and a rein around your neck. And so this is the picture. People who are yoked for one reason or another, and it's not meant to be glamorous, you're not um, meant to be in it forever. And, but as always, there were good masters and there were evil masters. But evil masters were common as well. In chapter one, verse 10, Paul speaks against all kinds of evil, and one of them he calls enslavers. These are people who typically would, uh, from the, the, the Roman Empire, often from the Roman army, would, would raid other nations and involuntarily capture people and force them into slavery. That is more closely what, what we understand or what um, our history produced. Um, but that was not uh, the bulk of the slaves in that day. Um, another problem when we, when we read a text like this is our modern sensitivities, our, our heart aches. We don't want to see anyone in slavery. We don't want to see anyone bonded to another. And so we get so emotionally invested into the context and into the situation that we lose sight of the gospel message here. There is a reason why Paul can speak um, directly about slavery. Because the gospel redeems everything in a broken world. And the, the gospel will one day re, uh, redeem everything. And so there actually is a picture of noble slavery because it begins with our corporate reading from earlier. So I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. If you don't know what Philippians chapter 2 is, you're going to go uh, three books to your left, four books to your left. They're very, very small letters. You'll, you'll get there quickly. I want to spend a little time on this. Philippians is a joyful book. It's an encouraging book. But Paul makes such an amazing argument here at the beginning of chapter 2. Now, on first read, this seems disconnected. Let's, let's read in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. So Paul is saying, if you're united in, in Christ, make me happy by having the same mind, being united to one another. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look on, not only to the, his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Okay, so he seems to be talking to the church here, and he is. He's speaking very practically about interrelational um, communion within the church. But then he kind of seems to make a left turn here. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, those in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And he goes on. Wait a second, we're talking about humility here, and then, then you're going to go into the gospel story. This is the perfect example. Because if you're going to encourage people to be humble, and people to be of, of, of one mind, and to think uh, not highly of themselves, but highly of others, who is the greatest example? Who else would we look to? Do we have any reason to be arrogant? 
If the Lord of glory takes on flesh, it is not an upgrade for the Lord of, of, of glory to put this stuff on. There is no greater example of humility. And so, right out of the gate, Christian, if you read this text, or you go throughout your week and you have any thought of your own righteousness, of your own goodness, thinking too highly of yourself, remember Christ. Have this mind among yourselves in Christ Jesus. He's not only the source of our salvation, but he's the source of our humility because he showed us how it was done. But I want you to see here the word that Paul uses. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave. Doulos, same word. He's making a powerful statement there. This is noble slavery. The son bonded himself to the will of the father and came to be the lowliest of all, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He became bonded to the cause of salvation. He praised God. He bore the yoke, the burden of our sin. He dragged our sorry butts across the road to Calvary. Our Savior did that for us. It gives us a different picture of slavery, doesn't it? Some of you are still laughing because I said butt. We can say butt. <laughs> His humility, his obedience took him all the way to the cross. How often do we resist our obedience in such, in such simple little things? To the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So if that is what it means to be a slave, count me in. And so that is why it is an honor and a privilege to be called a slave of Christ. In fact, that is Paul's favorite definition, or excuse me, um, distinction for himself. Designation, that's what I was looking for. His favorite designation for himself. More often than anything else, Paul calls himself a slave of Christ Jesus. Because his savior was a slave for him, was bonded to his sin, and we are not exempt from it. That's why Paul can go on in Romans 6. I want you to turn there as well. Keep turning to the left. Another four books to the left. Get in Romans chapter 6. Okay, so before we go any further, I'm establishing a foundation here. The Bible speaks a lot about slavery. But for the Christian, that last passage and this passage, this is where we get our definition of slavery. This now defines us. This is what it means to be a slave of Christ. And so Paul sets this up with the idea of serving something. Verse 16. 
Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either to sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? You must understand this. You serve something. Right now, you are either a slave to your desires, to your needs, to your wants, to your relationships, to your ego, to your fears. You serve something. But Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. And if you are serving anyone else but Christ, what does it mean to serve? Okay, let's, let, let's talk about that for a second. Take account of your life. If you were to look at your calendar, you were to look at the hours of your day, what are you working toward? Want to know who you serve? Who do you work hardest for? Your pocket? Pleasing others? If people were to look at your life, take account of the, the, the time that you spent, what are you serving because if you are serving yourself, you are dead in your sin. That master will never deliver on any of its promises. The promise of wealth, the promise of promotion, the promise of value, the promise of love from the outside, it will never deliver. It cannot. It is dead and it is empty and it is a lie, but yet so many people live their lives by that. And so many Christians are so driven by their, ur their urges that Christ is just an afterthought. Paul puts two paths before you. And so I must ask, who do you serve? Who have you devoted yourself? Who have you bonded yourself to? Is it the one who can give you life or is it everything else that can only give you death? Rightly so, verse 17. But thanks be to God, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That only comes from the one who changes our heart. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. That is noble and beautiful slavery. Praise be to God. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. I'm using terms that you understand. This is a cultural norm. Everyone understood slavery. So I'm going to use something you understand to put your salvation into terms you can understand. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. That is the call, saints, to present ourselves as slaves of righteousness. That is our sanctification. We put on Christ's yoke because it is easy and it is light. And we throw off the yoke of our old selves. We throw off the chains, the shackles that we drag behind us of our own iniquity. For when you were slaves of sin, verse 20, you were free in regard to righteousness. We get that, don't we? That is the number one reason why people don't want to convert, why they don't want to repent. That's why I didn't want to repent. I was free of having to do good. I was free to do whatever I wanted. 
And I loved every minute of it because I was feeding my flesh and I was a slave to it. I said, I didn't realize I was dead. And people don't repent because they want to be free to be their own God, guns blazing all the way to hell. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. If you're in Christ today, you know what that is. You know what it means to be set free from your sin. But if you are not, you are still a slave to it. And that master wants to eat you alive and wants you to live eternity in perpetual death. Repent and turn to the gracious master. So, we look at that. You're either a slave to righteousness or a slave to sin, um, and we kind of understand the uh, cultural context. It's, so then it's not surprising that Paul is not concerned with reforming society. Paul never once in any of his letters speaks about changing laws because he is writing letters to people with reformed hearts, people who the law of God was kept on their behalf. They were not very concerned with man's laws because their identity was in the law keeper who kept the law on their behalf and he fulfilled it on their behalf. So, good plug for the men's study today. Hope all of you guys join us afterward for lunch. We're going we're gonna to look at that because if you understand the purpose of the law, how it points us to the gospel, and how they're similar, and how they are different, it is so helpful in the Christian life. And if you don't, you're going to be exhausted. This must be clear. So he doesn't go to abolish the institution. He deals with the, the, the cultural norm. Um, but he does address it, 1 Corinthians 7. Um, the next few will be on the screen because these are, these are shorter. Paul understands the reality of it. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bond servant? Were you a slave when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. Parentheses here. But if you can gain your, your freedom and avail, avail yourself to the opportunity. If you're a slave, don't worry about it. But if you can get free, by all means, do that. It's better. But why? Because in light of what's to come in just a moment, for he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. If our hearts only see the cultural context of someone being enslaved, yet if they're a Christian, they are free eternally, we have missed the greater reality. And that's why Paul can confidently say, don't worry about your particular station in life. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. Whether you are a slave or a master, in Christ you serve Christ. You were bought with a price, so do not become bondservants of men. That is more important than anything else. You have been freed from sin and its dominion over you. Don't give it back. Don't put yourself under someone else's yoke. There is only one yoke that is easy and light. He's 
closes with, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. This is the Christian life. If we can get out of our present circumstances, if we can seek promotion, great. But can we be content where he has called us? Can we be content if we never get a raise? Can we be content if we never get the house we want? Can we be content if we never get the recognition from our, boss, recognition from our bosses that we think we deserve? Can we remain content in the Lord where he has us? That's hard. But that is the peace that passes understanding. Because to the flesh, that makes no sense. So, now that we're out of the first line, <laughs> let all who are under the yoke of bond servants regard their masters as worthy of honor. So if you have that contentment, if you have that confidence in Christ, now this picture of honor, this is more... Um, respect than it is um, remuneration or, you know, uh, the last couple dealt with funds. This is honor and respect. Because if you're serving your heavenly master well, slaves on earth will serve their masters with excellence. Because if you understand that anything here in this life is a light momentary affliction, if your life, if your eyes are on the eternal weight of glory, serving here seems like an easy Thing, because we are serving unto our master. So then, saints whose citizenship, whose inheritance, whose confidence is in heaven, they should make the most productive citizens on earth and the most faithful workers. Here's what Paul says in Romans 13, 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Why? We came already out of our gratefulness that we have been set free from our sin. But this also is a witness to the God who has saved us. Paul says, honor your masters is worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Remember, considering all the scriptures, considering the God who has saved you, the doctrine that you stand on, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ and new life in him, don't act like a fool so they revile your, your, your master because of you. Remember I said last week, we can't turn it off. In Christ, you always represent Christ. But it might be easier just to not talk about him so you can act how you want. But brothers and sisters, there is no greater motivation for us. We do not want our Heavenly Father's name to be reviled. We do not want people to view the doctrines of our faith as hypocrisy because we're hypocrites. And so we reflect him. We do not want to bring shame to our God or the gospel. So let's bring this home. Let's get applicable for a moment here. For us, the church, everything we do as a child of the king, as a standard bearer and slave of Jesus Christ, becomes a reflection of our Savior. Remember a couple weeks ago, one of Paul's main concerns about those young widows who had too much time on their hands, they gave the enemy, the accuser, opposition for slander. If you're going to get yourself in, into trouble, you better be productive and get out of it because 
Not for your sake, not so that you'll be found out. Because you don't want the enemy to bring charges against your king whose name you bear. You represent your master, just like the slaves in those days represented their master. And so we can bring this, this home. Our places of employment are the places where people see us the most. And many, for many people, where you work, they see you more than your own family does. They see a side of you that most of us in this room probably never see. So, how does how you treat your bosses, how you treat your coworkers, how do you treat those you work for and work with, how does that reflect Christ? Do you act in such a way that they see him, that they want to know why you're so different? Are you known for your integrity? Let's talk about honor for a moment. Are you someone who is known to honor your obligations? Do they know that when George or Dylan or Caleb says, I'm going to be somewhere, he'll be there. Your yes means yes and your no means, means no. You're a man or woman of integrity. Would the pizza delivery guy say the same thing? With the plumber that you hire or the contractor that you bring in? Are we people of honor? Do we show honor to others as a witness? Or are we the ones who steal office supplies here or there? Who steal time by showing up late or not working on the job? Um, I like what Charles Spurgeon says to this. Um, I've recommended John Plowman's talks many times. Um, but he speaks about the idle person here. And his picture of the uh, plowman is, is, is the everyday worker, the Christian in their life. He says this, I think a godly plowman ought to be the best man in the field and let no team beat him. When you are at work, we ought to be at it and not stop the plow to talk. Even though the talk may be about religion, for then we not only rob our employers of our time, but the time of the horses too. He goes on to say, However, I do wish that all Christians would be industrious, for religion was never destined to make us idle. Jesus was a great worker, and his disciples must not be afraid of hard work. As to serving the Lord with cold hearts and drowsy souls, there has been too much of it, and it causes religion to wither. How many of us are drowsy and listless in our work? in our Christian disciplines, in our religious practices. Or maybe we're the other side. Maybe we're a jerk, and maybe we're the uh, self-righteous, self-appointed hall monitor of our jobs who want to correct everyone else and thinks that, that, that vengeance and justice is ours, says me. And so our coworkers hate us because we're constantly trying to apply God's law to people who hate God. And then they hate him all the more. Our work ethic should be greater than others. Because in this too, we become a witness. So think about it. Imagine the gospel opportunity when all the other employees are, are, are goofing off because the boss is gone and you're still hard at work. They're like, what's wrong with you? Why do you care? You're making the rest of us look bad. What a great opportunity to say, I don't work for an earthly paycheck. 
I need the earthly paycheck. It is a necessary evil. But I work for my Father in heaven. And I am an example to him everywhere. Or is your work ethic just like everyone else's? Because you don't want to stand out too much. He's just like us. She's, she's one of us. Is your speech and your conduct like everyone else's? Same thing with office gossip. Is it too easy to fit right in? Petty squabbles. Couple of four, five, ten drinks after work. Same TV shows because you want to feel like you fit in, so i got to watch all the other crap they're watching. Hit any nerves yet? Here's what Paul says in Titus chapter 2. Now we're going two books to the right, verse 9 and 10. He says, bond servants are, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing. Look at this list. Not argumentative, not pilfering, that is stealing, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That's the call to bond servants, to slaves. That's the call to Christian workers. We should take this in every area of our life. And we should work in such a way where people ask, why do you do what you do? Why do you do it so well? How can you do it so well? This job sucks. How can you do it with a smile on your face? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So whether your boss is horrible or your boss is a believer. Let's get to verse 2. Those who have believing masters, wait, what? There are Christians that own slaves? Yeah. You mean the God who hates oppression and injustice never speaks once in the scriptures, not the patriarchs, not the prophets, not the apostles, about abolishing this unfair system of slavery? Yeah. And there are people in the church who own slaves. What? Christians had slaves and they treated them as brothers. It's true, and it can actually work, but let's be clear on what this is not. There are many great theologians, many that we love, who used verses like this in our American history to promote slavery. Say so here, it's, it's a good thing. Don't take description for prescription. Remember, we've talked about this. Don't take something that is described as a reality and make it a prescribed ordinance of God. And it definitely is not what we saw the stark contrast of in our sad history. Because there were many so-called lowercase c Christians in the days of America's slave trade who would insist on these verses. See, you're to serve your masters well, all while forbidding them to learn how to read and read the Bible for themselves. Not to say that ancient Roman slavery was good and our slavery, our slavery was evil. But we must be careful to describe the situation and not prescribe something out of it that the text doesn't bear itself. That is worth mentioning. So let's deal with what was going on in Ephesus. So you've got brothers listen to the same sermons, approach the same communion table, and one is bonded to another. 
Paul says, those who are believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Well, that's kind of a weird thing. Why would you be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers? We all do this. How often have we been guilty of treating our family members and church members differently because we care more about saving face for those on the outside? We care more about what everyone outside of our home and outside of our church, we care more about what our neighbors think of us and treat people in the church poorly. I've seen this more often than I can count. There is an old saying that familiarity breeds contempt. And the church is not exempt from this. I've even seen people take advantage of Christian owners because they know that owner's gonna forgive them, gonna be gracious, gonna be kind, gonna be patient, and that's easy to exploit. And our flesh is like, yeah, I know he's not gonna fire me, he's too nice of a guy, so I'll take advantage of it. Don't do that. We are free in Christ, but that freedom is not an excuse for sin. This is what Paul says in Galatians 5. Galatians 5.13, it's interesting the words he uses here again. Galatians 5.13 where Paul says, Well, begin, well, in verse one, he says, for freedom in Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not, be, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We looked at that earlier. Continuing on to that thought, verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Through love, duleo. Be in bonded service to one another. He uses the verb form of slave. This is what we're to look like in the church. Only do not use your freedom as opportunity for the flesh, but in love serve one another. This is not showing your boss or your, those in the faith with disrespect, but with service and love because the same one who freed you freed them. Not only should you serve one another, but you should serve them better. He says, on the ground that they are brothers, rather they must serve them all the better. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, for though I myself am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. I'm a slave of Christ and I'm a servant of all, and I'm not ashamed of it. And if you think, Paul is just posturing here, he puts his money where his mouth is. Turn to Philemon. Brett was thrown off. Most of you are probably thrown off by my pronunciation. That's the Greek pronunciation. So uh, another couple books to the right. It is the last of, just so you know, in your New Testament order, fun fact, they are, Paul's letters are arranged from size. So Romans is the largest and Philemon is the smallest. So Philemon's always to the right. Romans is always to the front. That's how they did it. So the little book squeezed in between Titus and Hebrews. I want to read a larger section here because if you're not familiar with this, we we did a series on this coming out of Colossians. This is the church in Colossae. This is the exact situation. You've got Philemon who is a prominent member in the church who owns slaves. One of those slaves, Onesimus, runs off. Onesimus' um, name means worthless. He's good for nothing. Um, Very poor name. But I want you to see what Paul does here. So let begin, begin reading in verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. 
Paul could put the apostolic foot down here and say, this is what you need to do. But because they're brothers and they love one another, and they should want lo- love one another, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Paul doesn't take the uh, higher ground in terms of ethics. He takes the higher spiritual ground. That was right outside. Um, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. Oh, excuse me. Onesimus means um, useful. Yeah, he was the one who was useless. Now he's useful. There you go. Uh, Whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful. Uh, Maybe there's a name change or something. And to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have you be glad to keep him, I'd be glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf. That'd be really nice of you, Philemon, that he could stay with me and that um, you could just forgive his, his uh, debt so he could serve me during my imprisonment for the gospel because I am in prison for preaching the gospel, by the way, in case you forgot. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent. See how he's honoring the master here in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he has parted from you for a little while, that you may have him back forever. Onesimus ran off, but Paul's saying the the greater import here is that if you are united as brothers forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you have received me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Paul is doing what his Savior did to us. Anything he owes, it's just money. I take that on. He took, our Savior took the debt of our sin. What is it to take someone's financial debt? All I have is the Lord's anyway. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. You see, Paul's desire here is not a socialistic redistribution of wealth is that men in different standings are, you, are one in Christ. That no matter how much or how little you have, no matter, you're, no, no matter if you're the one who owes a debt or, or um, is the one who can collect on the debt, that your union be in Christ. And so that's why he can say, if you're gonna, you have a believing master, serve them all the better. Because they, they bear the same blood you do. They are beloved, the beloved of God, the Son of God, has made them beloved and made you beloved. That is your identity, not slave or master. They're believers. You have the same faith. You have the same eternity. Don't get caught up in the temporary. So the overriding sentiment here is that you are both brothers in Christ. Your love for the Savior and his saints should push Uh, any jealousy, resentment, or entitlement out of your head. What kind of a witness would we have as Christians? And what kind of witness do we have? 
when we show mutual respect and admiration in the name of Christ? What kind of witness is it when an employer roots, an employee roots for the employer to succeed? I am here to make my boss successful because he glorifies God and I want to glorify God in helping him. And it's not just them. There is a common grace benefit. When we serve well, we are salt and light in whatever we do. Godly workers have an impact on companies and communities and cultures and countries. And as the gospel goes forth, we make it savory with our salt. We shine a light on it. And so the true transformation of culture begins with the transformation of the heart. And those who work well, as they witness, their God is not reviled, he is glorified. We become servants of all so that we might win some and everyone around us benefits. Now you can see why Paul says, teach and urge these things. That is so contrary to the rest of the world. So it's interesting that masters are not mentioned here, but they are mentioned in Colossians. They are mentioned in Ephesians 6. Um, Quickly, it'll be up on the screen too. Um, Ephesians 6 kind of breaks all this out. This is not just for workers. Uh, This is for business owners, employers, bosses. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Do it as if Christ watching. Remember last week, before the throne of God, we do everything quorum Deo. Doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters do the same thing to them and stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both master, who is both their master and yours in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. Believing employers are no different. We are to treat our employees with honor especially if they are beloved brothers, to show the love and grace we have received. So I think for most Christians, it's easy to trust God with our salvation, but it's hard to trust him with our finances. I gotta get a little edge here. He will provide for your business, for your household. He knows what you need, and so we can be gracious and we can be generous. Um, One final point of of application. I wanna get into this a little bit in our remaining moments. In your outline, it's titled The Beauty of Excellence. So I want to deal with the matter of excellence. I think this is something that needs to be addressed in the church today. Um, let's be honest. We live in a day where people don't want to work. People don't like work. It is common, and it is encouraged to do the very least you can while still keeping your, your, your job. There are people who are social media famous for this. Companies like Google and Apple and, and Twitter go above and beyond so that, they're, so that their employees have to work as little as possible. And they get to pamper themselves as much as they can. And Christians buy into this. Christians buy into thinking it's okay to just do the bare minimum. We create this kind of this untrue uh, secular, sacred, uh, sacred secular distinction. So, yeah, I honor the Lord in 
church, but my time is my own time, so I can cut corners when I want. I can do a terrible job. But don't forget everything we just talked about before about, uh, about the gospel implications. It's almost a game in, in, in our culture. How long can I get away with not working? How long can I get away with, with, with doing things halfway and half-hearted and half other things? And I think it's sad when Christians buy into this. How can we not perform our duties with excellence? We serve a God who creates excellently, who creates beautifully, who creates perfectly. And how can the people who he has done beautiful and wonderful works in not work with excellence? How can we not reflect him in that? How can we not reflect him in our homes? In the church building he's, he's, he's given us. We shouldn't be lazy or haphazard. But how often it's like, oh, that's, that's good. That's good enough. Who cares? We should be excellent workers, not to please men, but to minister to men and to glorify our Father in heaven. I want to give you a few examples. We can think of Joseph, a man who is upright and honorable in all ways. And even the top pagan on the planet honors him, second to Pharaoh. Think Daniel and his friends who are faithful in the heart of Babylon. I want to read from Daniel chapter 6. I want you to, I want you to see what happens when followers of the true and living God work with excellence. And they work hard and they and they are a witness to everyone who is around them. Daniel chapter 6. I'm just going to look at the first five verses. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one. To whom these satraps um, should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became a distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for a complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Can Everyone say the same thing about us. What a witness that is. He stands above all the, the, the pagans. He does a better job than the people who belong there. They could find nothing against him. No fault. It was a spirit of excellence within him. Verse 5, then these men said, we shall not find any grounds for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Ooh. Think about that for a moment. We do not want the complaint to be against us. Let the, the wicked people are going to hate God and they're going to hate the law of God. That's what they are railing against. Let's not give them further excuse. Let's not be poor witnesses and poor examples so that they revile God because of us. They're going to do enough of that on their own. Let their only complaint be against God and not his servants. Not just Daniel. We can give many more examples. 
Never ever wonder why there are so many details about the tabernacle and the temple. If God is, is spirit, couldn't they just all huddle around the, bur- the, the burning bush and set up tents there? But God is so particular. He takes great care and concern for his temple and for his tabernacle. I want to show you a few verses here. Exodus is completely full of this language. I'm just going to look at one section. But how much does our God care about excellence and about beauty and things being done well? See what he does here. This is Exodus, Exodus chapter 35, verse 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he, the Lord here, has filled him with the Spirit of God. To do what? The the Spirit of God with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with craftsmanship. To devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Oliab, the son of Ahasmash, the of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer, by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, or by a weaver or by every sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Oliab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work Uh, in the construction of the sanctuary, shall do the work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. God went to that much detail because he wants to be glorified in his place of worship and through those who worship him. And Moses called Bezalel, and I wish there wasn't so many names in here, Oliahab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill and everyone whose heart stirred him up to do the work. We ought to be skillful people who are stirred up to do good work for the glory of God. So that when the nations come and see, this God is amazing. Because they turn angry little spoiled brats like Noah into the kindest, gentlest guy you'll ever see. We should be people of excellence. And all these contributions and everything comes in. That's why I love, and I want to just brag on him for a moment. That's why I love working with, with Jonathan. Jonathan, week in, week out, has such concern for excellence. I mean, isn't it such an encouragement to stand here and sing in just enough music so that we, you don't hear our terrible voices, but enough music to drive all of our voices up so we become a chorus? And every week, putting the time and energy in to make sure that everyone plays excellently so that we can sing excellent because our God is excellent. And we ought to do that in everything that we do. And so thinking about that practically, or one more thing, if the Lord puts that much emphasis in his temple, what about those who are temples of the Holy Spirit? What about our God who now resides in us. If he went to that length of detail for a building that no one has seen for a couple thousand years, but we right now are a temple of the living God, how excellent should we be in our work, in our efforts, in our presentation? How how should we be a place of worship that points people to the glory of our God because we have been redeemed by him? And so just practically now, if you work hard, you show initiative, 
You do what other people are not willing to do. You'll make yourself indispensable. You will rise up quickly. You should be one of the best workers, not to be recognized by men, but to glorify God. So immediately we do that, but also evangelistically. Our work, work ethic should be in line with our witness. Because when you are excellent in everything you do and you start talking, people will pay attention. But if you're slack and you're lazy and you try to share something with, with, with someone, they don't want to hear it. So in conclusion, just want to give you three points for reflection. Please remember, even in a thankless job with horrible conditions, you can serve a master whose burden is easy and whose weight is light. Serve the Lord with gladness. A slave of the Lord is a beautiful thing. It is better than a king of sin. Number two, it does not matter in eternity whether you are boss or your employer, but rather are you faithful. What matters is that you are a servant of Christ, a slave to righteousness. That is why Paul can say, there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. Christ is all in all. That is what matters. Don't let your station be, don't let your station define you, be defined by Christ. So then, especially for believers, the way we treat one another should put the world to shame. What unites us is our common faith in Jesus Christ, our love for the Father, our being bonded in one spirit. We are loved. We are loved in the beloved, so we should love and we should serve as a witness to our master in heaven, whoever our master on earth happens to be. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, we praise you, because you first loved us, and you redeemed us to the praise of your glory. Lord, we can't do justice to what it means to be a slave to Christ. We can't do justice to what it means to be drawn away from our slavery to sin. We can never repay you. We can never express our gratitude. We can never fully understand the weight that you bore on the cross for us. But we can praise you. We can serve you. We can obey you because we owe you everything. And in you, we have everything. Heavenly Father, we praise you for what we have in Christ. We praise you for your spirit that through Christ and in your spirit, we can draw near to the Holy One of Israel, that no more temples or sacrifices are needed because you have created your people as a, as a temple. You have made our worship acceptable through Christ. May we serve and work and do everything in excellence as worship to our Lord Jesus Christ, that the world may stand in wonder and that they may glorify his name through us. And it's in his name we pray, amen.